Hi, and welcome to another Meet the Author. We've got a great discussion in store, and I'm just going to hand it right off to my friend Gary. Gary, take it away. Thanks, Doriel. Welcome, everybody. I'm joining us today. We have a really cool guest, and I've had the privilege of reading his book. Robert J. DeBoer is with us. Welcome, Robert. We also see that um, our previous author from the last show, Michael Sheveldeep, is online as well. And there is a kind of connection. There is a kind of a method in our, or madness in our method of the different shows that we're showing. Back in August, we did talk about the complexity-based approach. And this particular book that Robert has written also carries on with that theme of complexity. But we also look at it from a very operational point of view. His book is called Safety Leadership, a different doable and directed approach to operational improvements. If you look at my background picture, and if you go on view, you may have a better view, um, view of it. The first thing that struck me was the photo on the cover. If you take a closer look, you can see a car. So this is a roadway. Robert, can you tell us more about this photo and how you chose it? Yeah, this was uh, chosen on purpose. Uh, what you see is uh, between uh, the, the, the big arc, you see um, a little track here. Um, we call them desire paths in England, in, in English, only fontepache in Dutch, uh, meaning elephant's paths. And they actually show a way of getting from A to B, perhaps somewhat easier than you would if you were following the main track. And that is what, um, uh, what one of the, the main cornerstones is of what I'm talking about in my book, that's local ingenuity. It's where we find ways to do the work, which is a little bit smarter or thought through than, um, than, than the traditional or the prescribed way of doing work. And that's what we see people doing all the time when they're balancing con contradictory goals. They try to get to the desired state as quickly as possible, making use of their ingenuity, but it's very, very much localized. Great. Thanks. Okay. Well, in your book, you offer a coherent sense-making approach to safety that is different, doable, and directed. You say this approach is suitable for organizations that are subject to low incident rates where adverse events are perhaps too few to account, and their cause is not a single, easily identifiable failure or malfunction. You say that incidents are a natural consequence of the complexity of the system can you expand on that? Yeah, I think we, we're all pretty uh, sensitive, certainly after um, Michael's talk last time uh, about complexity and how that leads to emergence, to, to a situation which we cannot properly um, identify uh, upfront, but which in hindsight becomes explainable. And in my definition of emergence, I, I vary a little from the scientific definition where it's just the interaction between components of a system. But I very much uh, focus on the fact that in hindsight, something is reasonably well explainable, but it's very, very difficult, if not impossible to predict. Uh, one example is where there was a, a hotel being constructed in the vicinity of an airport uh, around Dublin. And uh, the setting up of the lights was such that the uh, pilots of a particular plane thought that the lights on the construction building, on the hotel itself, were actually in showing him the way towards the runway. 
and that wasn't the case at all. It was uh, they were deviating from the path. It was actually quite a dangerous situation. And luckily, air traffic control was able to, um, to 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 correct them. But you can imagine that no one really thought about a lighting arrangement in a hotel in the vicinity of an airport, um, that well within the legal boundaries, would uh, distract uh, a pilot in such a way. So let's take a little deeper dive into the book. And what I, I like about this book, if, if people know me, I like seeing things in threes. And your book actually is in three, three Ds, different, doable, and directed. How about if you kind of give a brief overview of what the different, th different paths are? Yeah, um, first of all, different. Um, and uh, I've, I stress the difference because the paradigm from which I depart uh, in this book is different to the traditional way that safety is sometimes approached. Uh, I have a bit of difficulty there, but I'm sure because I, I'm sure that most of the audience here uh, today uh, would not adhere to the traditional way of looking uh, at safety. Uh, and that is what much of the book is about. How do we uh, ensure congruency between local ingenuity and the autonomy that people need in the workplace to do their job properly? amongst conflicting goals and the wish to at some point introduce barriers and safety constraints which are also important and which often um, protect us against risks and hazards which we haven't personally experienced and so we don't don't naturally relate to them very well but we are certainly certain that they are so large and so riskful that we don't want someone to uh, step in there by accident. So in that way, the approach is quite different. By departing from the paradigm of 100% compliance, rather starting from, from how work is actually done and then relating back to what that means to rules and procedures. How about doable? What does doable mean? Doable means that you've got to stop talking about it and just get down and do it. Um, and uh, I've tried in the book to make it as simple as possible to make little steps. It's only 100 pages. I, I, I hesitate about the thinness of the book, actually. Uh, when rereading it now, I see that every sentence sort of makes sense. Uh, but what I haven't done in comparison with other authors is to repeat myself too often. At least I, th I think I haven't. And uh, in some ways, of course, repetition makes for better transfer of knowledge. And that may be uh, yeah, one of the criticisms that someone might like to make, that I've been very brief about what I've written, and therefore sentences need to be taken seriously one at a time. Uh, nevertheless, the, the, the approach that I mentioned in there is, is, is quite, quite doable for, for both operations managers and uh, safety, those responsible for safety, safety professionals to start doing something. But, and then we get to the third D, it does need direction. Are you can ask me about that now, Gary. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you've, you've talked a bit about who the audience is for the book. And because of your title, Safety Leadership, I think the audience includes leaders. Yes, absolutely. Because um, although what, what I write is doable, if you do that within an environment where you don't get the autonomy to, to actually um, um, uh, get it done, uh, then it'll stifle every enthusiasm. And so there needs to be support from top management for this approach, understanding for why it's important and, and, and better than uh, hanging on to the traditional way of doing stuff um, and uh, being able to move forward. 
Uh, and, and the examples are great. I mean, we've, we've done a lot of work with Mercy Care. Some of you might know um, over in the UK, uh, Liverpool, which is an NHS uh, foundation trust for originally mental health. But because they are prospering so well, they are taking on very many other um, health uh, entities. And so they've, they've diversified into quite a large-scale health organization in the Mercy uh, area. Um, and they have leadership who fully embrace this and who've been um, uh, in contact with Sydney for quite a few years now. And when they get it, they can then allow the people within the organization to take the room to maneuver to make this happen. On the other hand, we're working with an aviation maintenance company who have the aspiration to be one of the safest in their region of the world. Um, and although I get lip service from management, um, it doesn't always translate into um, giving off the right signals when it counts. And the right signals, of course, are, are not that difficult, but it's, it's getting the paradigm I just talked about and therefore being able to hear bad news. Rosa wrote a lot about that. Um, being able to, to, to have someone say to you, we weren't compliant. We weren't able to abide by the rules. And if you do not want to hear that message, you won't get it. It'll still happen, of course. And the local ingenuity will not be stopped, but you will not be getting that, that dialogue going. You will not be getting those messages. And that, I think, is why the direction is, is very, very important as well. Right. Let's take a pause there and just um, go to their, our guest panelists. Anybody have comments? Um, this concept, we always talk about lip service. Anybody had some really good or bad experiences with lip service talking to management? raise your hands or open up your mic, um, share some, some of your experiences. Tom, go ahead, open up your mic. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I've been thinking about this recently because I mean, I'm working as a regulator, but focusing on major hazards. And I've had two or three meetings recently where I fed back <clears throat> findings, which I guess the frontline operational staff were quite familiar with, but communicating it to the leadership team and what's been said very often was this is really powerful. We're keen to hear this. This is exposing how we can improve our sense of chronic unease. And I think that's a phrase which is obviously in the news a lot in the UK at the moment. So if you like the people responsible for process safety and safety saying, yes, we're really championing this word chronic unease. But although the leadership in the room, the sort of owners, the site managers, they, they say the right things. They say, yes, we want to champion it. But you can almost see them. Their, their body language is nervous about this sense of it's too much. And I wonder whether it's, it's important to differentiate where are we applying our sense of chronic unease to stop it being chronic. So, for example, what you apply with respect to major hazard risks is not the same as personal occupational risks. You know, yeah. If you've got a nuclear power plant, you've got to be absolutely rigorous about isolation of safety devices. But you don't have to apply the same level of rigor to coffee cups, handrails, and even occupational risk. You have to trust people to do their own job. And it's, it's a bit like your lines of desire. You can afford lines of desire with some risks, but not with others. And it's managing that compromise. So I think yeah. it's... Yeah, I think that's an observation. Yeah, that's a really good. Can I react to that, uh, Gary? Can I? Yeah, sure, please. Yeah. Yep. yeah. Um, so, um, yeah, the, the, the discussion on risk, keeping the discussion on risk alive is a really uh, important part of uh, staying safe, of course. Um, 
And uh, one would hope that the discussion would uh, expand, particularly to process safety, uh, certainly when we're talking about nuclear power plants, rather than the coffee cups. That in itself is already a question for an auditor. Eh? When you talk about unease, what are the subjects you're talking about? One of the things I would ask if I was a regulator is when did this discussion last lead to a stop? When do, because the discussion for the sake of discussion isn't really what you're looking for, Tom. What you're looking for is a, is a balanced decision uh, to say stop. And stop in itself has gradients. Um, the, the continuing operation as is, is, is the, the worst part of stop. It's hardly any stop. We had a discussion. We talked about it when we agreed to continue on. This is a bit of a challenger, like uh, challenger space shuttle uh, type of, uh, uh, yes, we talked about it, but we're going to launch anyway. Um, the, the, the next one up is uh, we did an extra inspection. Well, that's all right, but it's still not much of a stop. The, the, where it really gets good but painful for management is when we say, right, we're going to delay this for two days and we're really going to get to the bottom of this. Or we're going to delay this until this and this happens. Or we're going to delay this until we get these supplies, which we believe we are necessary. Or we're going to not delay this, we're going to actually abort this. So that's the gradient of the stop. And what I would do if I was a regulator, if I was auditing, and what I actually do do when I talk to companies is, all right, you say you talk about risk. What were the consequences? Can you give me an example of this, that, and the other? And, and that helps get that uh, story of discussion of risks really alive. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a phrase, this chronic unease, the discussion of risk, and we've got to make it tangible and in certain ways measurable. Does that help at all? Yeah, I think one of the challenges, and it is in this word chronic, and, and you've talked about the, the degrees of stop, but I think the other aspect of it is the degrees of problems that you talk about. So one of the things that I've seen is, and, and if you take a simple issue of um, permits to work, is that in my experience, no permit is perfect, but you need to encourage people to talk about the problems on the permit and how they can improve it without actually stopping the job. <laughs> you know, it's, it's very disruptive and you want to stop and have a conversation and do something short term and say, we keep finding a problem in this area. We need to really get to the bottom of it. It's not the same as you all need to stop work until we've sorted out this issue. So there's kind of gray areas because otherwise people, people are very reluctant to stop work over an opportunity. Yeah. Yeah, I think, I think, yeah, I think that's what I'm trying to convey. Um, so um, in a mature organization, um, the, the, the content of the chronic unease discussions, of the stop discussions are real. They are not cosmetic. And I think as, an, as, a, as a regulator, I would want to sense whether it's real or whether these discussions are uh, cosmetic. Um, and and it, it needs to hurt every now and then if the risks are too large. And if there's no way that the, 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 the risks can be so large that we stop operation, then I would say, well, hang on a minute. What, what, what's your reality? Because in most other realities, there is. There are moments I, that we stop. I, I guess the analogy for me is if you look at, um, I'll move, move out sideways office, but if you look at the sort of the simplicity of the Toyota production line, of the stop cord, you know, yes, we pull the stop cord. And when they start doing it, there's a behavior. Yeah, it's okay to pull the stop cord. 
But actually, when you look at it in a bit more depth, once people have matured and got used to it, occasionally they still pull the stop cord. But actually, there's very valuable discussions at the end of each shift and at yep. the end of each week. It's, the stop cord almost is a symbol. Being prepared to stop the aircraft carry operations because you can't find the um, hammer this is a really powerful symbol, and it is almost a cultural icon. Yep. But actually having really detailed after-action reviews where you, you say everything was okay, but can we make it a bit better tomorrow? So it's, it's in the grayness that you get the healthy unease. Okay, I'm, I'm going to move on and let Tamara Actually, go ahead. Yeah, okay, yeah, thanks. Um, you know, it's interesting to, to hear these discussions because as somebody who did health and safety with workers on the front line, um, what I noticed was, one, a lot of employees were, were very interested in having a, a healthy as well as a safe workplace. And in fact, they were very frustrated and felt that um, the, the middle management was actually the, the bottleneck in the barrier, not upper management, not executives, you know, um, that it's when they were bringing, bringing items to that um, management of the site that they would then get rolling eyes or be um, dismissed um, that what they were bringing was not valid. And then of course, something would happen because it wasn't looked after and senior management would come down and say, well, you know, did nobody see this? And the staff will say, oh yeah, we saw it. We talked to the manager and you have a fire and you're fresh to go because when we came three times to ask for something, they rolled their eyes at us and said it wasn't important. We didn't need it. So, you know, I want to, I'd like to debunk or demiss myth. The, the fact that the employees don't always care, because I don't think that's a, a true statement. And I, you know, it's also senior management also. Um, they, sometimes they care a lot and they get really upset when they find out that employees had tried to communicate. Yep. And then it was those who are supposed to be the guardians of the workplace for the senior management that actually, you know, like I've seen people try to do stop work call a stop work and and they will get reprimanded for it that that type of behavior is what closes off the employees because that the the employee says at the end of the day this is not my company i if, if you don't want me to think i'll come to work i'll do my job and i'll leave like you know because if they're treated with such disrespect and i think that needs to also be something part of the discussion too is the respect factor so yep, cool. I'm going to shift the focus now <clears throat> to the second D. If you got any more comments about that first D different, please put them in the chat panel and we can look at them. But I want to shift to that second doable. Sydney Decker wrote a pretty cool forward in your, in your book about being a low threshold book, Robert, getting into the world of safety differently and safety too. But what I like is that you wrote in layman's terms about how to take small steps towards safety. And you covered quite a few topics in the book and it's just loaded with examples. It's amazing what you can pack into hundred pages. A big one for me is micro experiments, which you call essential tools in a complex environment where outcomes cannot be predicted beforehand. And I really like your connection with design thinking. Can you kind of talk about how that came about in your book? Yeah, we, um... 
I'm not sure who to credit with the term micro experiment completely. Sydney uh, did something with Woolworth, which he calls a micro experiment, um, together with a PhD student. Uh, at the same time, um, the Kinefin framework that we know from Dave Snowden um, uh, talks about uh, uh, sen a probe sensor response, which has a very similar type of uh, take. Um, and in the end, we've done a number of micro experiments now and uh, with students uh, from the university, we've converged into a, what seems to be a workable format. Uh, the importance is to, uh, the, this, it, key to the micro experiment is an intervention, which you don't know whether it will work or not. Uh, a change in a procedure, a new tool, um, even uh, like in Woolworth, letting go of safety constraints, anything which you can do within a constrained environment, within a limited environment is, uh, can be called the intervention. And what we then do is we, we, we execute the intervention for a short period in a, in a limited scope um, with extra assurances around it if needed. Um, and we see what happens. And we have, an, we have a prediction of what we think will happen. That's why we um, came up with the intervention in the first place. Um, but we check whether those results are created and whether they are not byproducts of the intervention, which we hadn't realized beforehand, which also occur. And if after the pre-specified period, we believe that all things being weighed, uh, the outcome is positive, then we will maintain the intervention, or at least formalize it. And formalizing an intervention needs some additional steps, of course. We need to communicate it, we need to document it, et cetera, et cetera. So it's, it's not, going from the informal to the formal automatically, that, that takes um, a, s some real steps. And if it doesn't quite work out as we wished, uh, then we cancel the intervention and change it or try something new or whatever. And in both cases, of course, the micro experiment is a success because if we know that an intervention works, that's great. But if we know that a particular intervention that we thought would work doesn't work, well, that's great as well. We've, we've, we've ensured that we don't fall in the trap of trying that untested. So, so that really works well. And that's uh, what we really recommend in those instances that uh, we're trying something different, but we don't really know how it works. One of the examples is uh, they had a, they, they have current time, uh, a bridge over here in the Netherlands over a large lake, which um, was starting to deteriorate and uh, the vibrations of the cars going across it were such that the deterioration would, would, would be quicker than the reparation time that they had available. So they wanted to slow down the traffic uh, to a manageable speed of 50K, 50 kilometers. And uh, one of the things they, they suggested was to, even though it was a three lane highway, one way, they would reduce it to two lanes so that because it gets very congested at the starting end. And so they changed that, that way of working quite quickly. And so that was a micro experiment, perhaps not predetermined, but in hindsight, it turns out that uh, the intervention that they thought would work had so many uh, negative by effects that they needed to change their way. So that's, uh, it's a great public example of a micro experiment, but we've done tons in the meantime in industry as well. You, you briefly talk about um, collecting narratives or short stories to, to understand the gap between work as imagined and work as done. Yep. Do you have some examples where you've actually collected stories and um, yeah, how yeah. did that work? Yeah, well, that, that, that was uh, 
frustrating, and I'll tell you why uh, at the end. Um, what we did, we had a, um, uh, a tool um, which allowed, uh, this was in a uh, military aviation maintenance environment. Um, and we had a tablet in the mess room in which the uh, mechanics could write down any stories which they liked about um, the trigger question was something like um, uh, what interesting aspect around procedures did uh, occur, did you experiment, experience today? And so we got some stories and we had to do a little bit of um, bribery with cakes and stuff to get enough stories. But once it started flowing, um, we got quite a lot of examples of where they had to take um, desire paths or, or use their local ingenuity um, to get the aircraft up and flying again, uh, despite a lack of tools or lack of uh, spare parts. And, and it was all uh, within the airworthiness regulations, but not quite within their own uh, wished for situations, not as not workers imagined. And so we collect in a period of a month, we collected about 40 of those. Um, and for me, it indicated the can-do mentality of not just uh, this nation's military, but actually, uh, if you look at the American or the uh, English and other military organizations, there is very much a can-do mentality uh, defined as the mission needs to go ahead despite a lack of resources, or uh, even if we don't have enough resources. Um, uh, and uh, that was visible here as well. And then, of course, came the moment that we had to uh, present our findings to higher management, to the squadron commander. Um, and he was a little bit disappointed. He said, I know all of this. I know each of these examples already. This is not so new for me. And so here we have a mismatch between the isolated examples, which are known, and, and each one of them, if you take them in isolation, is just a problem to solve. Whereas for me, it was also a trend, seeing that we have so many examples of where um, of a can-do mentality, where the mission is achieved despite having to uh, find uh, to, to use local ingenuity, uh, that that shows a pattern or even a culture which needs to be addressed. But to be uh, honest, uh, I think the squadron commander was too, too low in the organization to be able to address much of what was happening. He was dep dependent upon uh, on maintenance squadrons elsewhere and supply, of course, and suppliers. And not quite coincidentally, I'm now starting a new uh, project with this same organization on a different field. And uh, we talked to the general today, which we never got around to doing with the previous example. So I have a little bit more hope that there will be some support and understanding when we finish this, uh, this example here. Kenya, you put a really interesting comment in, in the chat about um, can we actually talk about micro experiments in the sense that we typically talk about? Can you open up your mic and just share that with us? Well, Gary, it's just something that I've been thinking recently that, um, you know, we've you know, in the scientific method, you don't do an experiment without having an hypothesis. You, you, you do have to have an idea of how this is going to turn out or else you shouldn't be playing in that kind of space. And this is true in the social sciences as well. But because of that, I'm just wondering if maybe some of the biases that we now know, like Dunning-Kruger and, you know, confirmation bias and all these kinds of things might actually dovetail with all of the 
uh, I don't know, social world in which we live, which is starting to, you know, really distrust science. And we might not actually want to experiment in the truest sense where, you know, you are honestly interested in an answer that you couldn't predict because, you know, of just a lot of those factors that, you know, if, if, if something turns out the way that you didn't predict, you're probably going to go back and check your methods. What did I do wrongly? Well, how did this not work the way that I thought it would? So I, I don't know. That's just something that I've been thinking yeah. about. No, I can recognize that feeling and uh, very, thank you very much for pointing it out to us. I think you're, you're absolutely right. There is this um, intention to make the world's controllable, planable, uh, dependable, uh, predictable. And so this understanding of what complexity really means is, uh, is, is, is actually a little bit challenging to spreadsheet managers or business school graduates. Yeah, absolutely right. Um, and it translates into uh, a much, much higher level of regulations and rules than we ever have had. Um, in my book, I mentioned that about 60% of the rules and regulations that we need to adhere to are actually self-imposed. And all of this is done to, to, to try and make the world controllable and, and, and planable and to, um, to protect ourselves against um, coincidence, unwanted incidents, uh, things which occur to us over, over which we have no control. Uh, yet that world is the world we live in, so there's no, no escaping it. And even perhaps I can be uh, criticized for making the micro experiments um, controllable in the sense that I, um, I, I, I see myself explaining to everybody continuously, this micro experiment can't fail. Uh, whatever the sentences I said just now, whatever we do, we will learn from it. It, it, it can only be good. We can only be going up um, in which I try, I then try to convince higher management to go ahead with it. Yeah. Michael, you want me to open up to Mike to just share a few things about how we use the term safety. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Without... I, I had my hand up for a while because I, I wanted to jump in and ask him a question about this. Well, um, micro experiments? Yeah. Robert and them is is I know you're talking about micro experiments and that's good in the right context but what I don't hear people talking a lot about is um, micro and macro observations which is totally different right where you're you're taking in information from your environment so that you can understand better do you go into that in your book at all yeah, I think so. We don't actually mention th those words, micro or macro observations, but what we uh, do uh, try and stress is to, to find out about this local ingenuity. You really need to engage with, uh, with the front line. You need to uh, not just uh, um, walk past and say, hi, how are things going? You really need to engage and understand what makes work difficult for them. What do they sacrifice when things get a little, little uh, more cumbersome? What are the different goals that they're trying to balance? And if we don't know all of that, then we can hardly help, well, help ourselves understand where this local ingenuity is, is not transparent and, and where the bounds are and therefore what risks we run. Because that's the bottom line, isn't it? I mean, it, it, the, the world's not going to stop turning just because I've written a book, uh, nor is it going to stop turning because uh, there's a non-compliance somewhere. The things that are happening today um, 
that are not transparent, this local ingenuity, the, these, these desire paths, that they have been happening and they'll continue to happen, irrespective of whether we engage with the front line or whether we take an aloof point of view and expect them to be 100% compliant. What was actually challenging and, and threatening even for managers is to find out about these um, desire paths, what is local ingenuity, to see that it isn't quite in line with what was expected in the rules and regulations. And then to think, shivers, I need to do something about this. I can't now that I know let this exist. And then it becomes a little painful. And some managers, they, they step back from that risk, that responsibility. So yes, we do need to observe and, and engage quite deeply, but we also need to be prepared to then take the next couple of steps. And that's why it needs to be directed. And I would even expand that observation to, like you said, the front line, which is great, but also to all levels of management and even uh, executive C-suite. I think, you know, micro and macro observations are valuable to see every, like, in a, in a, in a, right across the organization. And the reason is that because you can then start seeing the different dynamics that might be shifting things and creating things at play. Because often if we just look in one place, we could actually be missing what other things are influencing where we're looking. Yep. Just, yep. just noticing there's a lot of good comments about micro experiments. Just want to mention that in the book, what Robert does after each chapter in his conclusion puts bullet points and these are how to's. And he has, a, I think, a really good section on microexperiments. How did you microexperiment? So, again, a bit of plug for your book, Robert. Um, I really resonate with those. I think, Michael, you do as well, because they, they do match what we do and sort of work with story collecting. And yep. as you say, Tamara, micro observations could be those patterns or trends that Robert sees, which is, comes from the bigger picture as opposed to individuals. So, we see the forest, but you can also see the trees as well, and you, you can drive down. Just managing the time, I, I'd like we could carry on with, with this, this one for a long time, but we need to talk about that last D and we have talked a bit about it. It's about being directed. Uh, just like it, Gary, um, Tom yeah. has, a, has a good question, just, just quickly on the oh, micro experiments. Sure. Okay, open this... yep. um, so does it need to be fast, um, Tom asks. Um, okay. uh, fast in the sense of uh, a short time between Identifying the need and uh, uh, and starting it? No, not really. Uh, the, the, there's a bit of preparation to be done, and uh, in some cases that preparation uh, took longer than a year. But uh, they need to be uh, not even short, but they do need to be bounded in time. That's really important. The point is that there's, that that there's got to be a moment in time after we get most of the relevant information in that we say, all right, this micro experiment has now stopped. We are not doing this intervention anymore. And that makes for uh, an active choice as to whether we want to continue it. And if you do, then you need to formalize it. And there, there are steps to take to formalize an intervention. Or we change it or just did, uh, cancel it altogether. Um, and so by giving it an, a, a bounded specified time, we force that decision. Because the default, of course, is in many organizations, oh, it's been working well last week. Let's continue that. But then you don't have that um, definite evaluation. And more importantly, 
you then don't, you, you do exactly what you don't want with rules and regulations and new procedures is you don't introduce it properly. And that's why that bounded time particularly is something I'd like to stress. I, I'm curious, have you ever talked to Malcolm Staves at L'Oreal? Because no. what, what you're describing is very similar to, to a program that they have in-house where somebody might have an idea and they call it um, an initiative. And then that, that initiative is they form a team inside that, that work site. Okay, so it's, it's first very site specific. And then from there, they have a whole process, which I won't go into right now, but it, it gets evaluated, right? Whether or not there's validity from that small group trying it out. And then it, there's, there's different ways that it starts moving up the organization and it goes through formal phases that they have a, a program for and it comes out the other side as oh, if, cool. if it goes through yeah. all that, it then becomes a L'Oreal best practice. And it's yep. spread out globally, right? After it goes through several validation phrases in different regions and stuff. Yep. And that kind of... Yeah, that, that's, that sounds uh, um, quite close to what I was describing. I, I think you point, you're pointing to a, a second issue, which I just need to highlight there, um, Tamara. And that is that none of this is very original. Uh, I, I did not pretend to be original at all in this book. In fact, I've tried to document things which we were doing already. Um, what I have tried to do is to translate um, the, the thoughts of Sidney Decker, but not just Sidney Decker, many other people as well, into something practical. And if, that's, if, if people say, oh, this is all pretty old, but at least now I can make it work, well, then that's my goal achieved. I certainly didn't uh, intend to create anything new in the sense of new theories or anything. Okay, so let me now focus on that last one, directed. We already talked a bit about it, about the need for management support and buy-in, but there's some other things, topics that you raised in the book, such as psychological safety, there's counterfactuals, you talk about just culture, lots of topics here. I'm gonna let you either touch upon each one, Robert, or maybe specifically talk about one that you find most curious and frustrating. Frustrating. Oh, well, that's uh, that, that would be counterfactual. So that's uh, that's a great one, and I find myself uh, busy and busying them every now and then as well. Uh, just for for clarity, a counterfactual is something which could have occurred but didn't, and uh, particularly in terms of um, uh, incident investigations, we we uh, often encounter counterfactuals. If you're still with me. Um, people explaining that if that this or that happened would have been done or would have been uh, executed, then the event wouldn't have happened. And of course, that doesn't teach us very much. We sort of know that our systems are designed to be safe. Yet, if something happens, then, then the, the standard way of working, the standard way of how things were designed or intended, uh, apparently something else happened. And so what we are much more interested in, and this particularly relates to people, of course, what we're very much interested in is why it made sense in specific circumstances for people to do the things that they did. And, uh, and, and it's, it's frustrating for me 
I'm really, really interested when I hear about incidents uh, to, to, to try and get into the head of the people that were um, associated with it, uh, be it at the sharp end or be it further back at the blunt end. And sometimes uh, you can imagine it or the, the newspapers allude to some aspects that, that play a role. But much more often, um, uh, the, the, the papers and even the incident investigators will, will just let it be and resort to a counterfactual. Great, great example in a negative sense is a bridge that was operated uh, in the north of the Netherlands um, a couple of years ago now. And uh, the bridge watcher, um, while, while a boat was still passing underneath, lowered the bridge deck on top of that boat and both the boat, of course, was damaged and the bridge deck was damaged. Luckily, there were no injuries, but it was still a pretty damaging situation. Um, and this bridge watcher was actually brought to trial and the judge persecuted him. Well, he, did, he didn't have to go to jail. I think he got a fine um, because he lowered the bridge deck on top of the bridge and therefore didn't do his job properly. But at very, during the trial, it materialized that the bridge watcher had two mouse. I've even got two mouses here. I've got three screens, two computers, and two mice in front of me now. And I notice myself picking up the wrong mouse every now and then. And luckily, this doesn't operate a bridge deck or anything. But if an employer requires you to have two mouse next to your computer, then it's just a question of time before you pick the wrong one. Not a question of individuality, and so these counterfactuals. He shouldn't have picked up the the the. Uh, he shouldn't have. He should have used the correct mouse. It's so trivial that it really, it really frustrates me a lot. Can I talk about things that I enjoy as well, or do I just need to, sure. to out my frustrations, Gary? <laughs> right on. Go ahead. <laughs> um, psychological safety is um, is, is is of course. Um, it's become a bit of jargon, but it's it's something that we're really starting to get a feeling for. Uh, Amy Edmondson and our act, active Twitter life helps a lot as well. Um, and there's a lot that needs to be done to improve psychological safety. But but the bottom line for me is always: is management able to hear bad news? And I ask that of managers every now and then when I get the chance, if I'm not being thought of to be too cheeky. And of course they all say, oh yes, 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 we can hear bad news. But when you then associate with their, um, with their, the, the people which report to them and then, then find out what they can and cannot say to management, it, uh, it really, um, it really is something still to be worked on and getting that message across, getting people to, uh, to, uh, accept that they might not have an organization that is as psychologically safe as they would think. That's a real challenge for me. Just as just culture is, of course, uh, everybody will say that their, cult, their organization is as just as it needs to be. Um, but, uh, but that's only the managers talking. People lower down will always have a lot more criticisms. I'll talk about restorative practice in a, in a sec, but maybe this has already led to some questions and comments, if Gary will allow me, of course. Sure, by all means. We've got uh, 15 minutes left, so if anybody's got, um, want to have a share their comments. Um, Michael, go ahead. Yeah, uh, thanks, Robert. Um, 
just to that that last point, the point you made on psychological safety, one of the things that uh, some of the work that I've done collaboratively with Gary using narratives is, is paying attention to how historical narratives uh, that are pulled forward in time have an impact. Because I've seen management teams where they're so focused on the present and setting strategy and setting not just the present, but future oriented, is they don't realize that some significant um, organizational change or something that happened two, three, four, five, sometimes five years before is still resonating within the dialogue and the conversations that are happening in the work environment. And that oftentimes management making changes will actually trigger patterns that, that invoke sort of feelings and you get and, and have an influence, especially on psych, something that's emergent as psychological safety. Um, so one of the things that, that we're strongly advocating, and it relates to the comment I made uh, a little bit further up in the chat, is this concept of chronic unease. One of the things that I'd suggest we try to look at is unease is very dynamic. It might be in a very difficult, in a challenging environment, might be chronic and persistently chronic, but in generally is, is to recognize that it's, it's dynamic and fluid and could be shifting. So the question is, is how do we understand and make sense of our unease how do we uh, diffuse it and how do we use our actions to actually mitigate it and do that continuously? Because it's not, it's not like uh, looking at a map and saying we're here and we want to go there. And once we get there, we just stay and operate there. It's something that you have to pay attention to all the time. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. I was trying to find your comment, but I couldn't. So maybe you need to recomment. Oh, I can probably pop it in again. Yep. Yep. No, but that's, that's absolutely true. Yep. Well said. Okay. You mentioned about uh, restorative practice versus a, um, a, retributive, a retributive paradigm. And you talked about how retro, uh, retro, <laughs> restorative practice is being heard. And when you hear about that being the first step, perhaps, in um, a psychological safety continuum, can you, can you expand on that? Yeah. Yeah, uh, it used to be called and still is often called a sort of just culture. Um, and I'm trying to um, get the term restorative practice adopted um, because the sort of just culture sounds too much like just culture, whereas it's a completely different paradigm. Restorative practice um, is, is the paradigm of restorative practice is to address the, the feelings of hurt and emotion that are involved in the incident. And that sounds really soft, doesn't it? But what we find is that we humans, um, emotional types as we all are, um, we need to have those emotions addressed first before we can uh, move on uh, and even be clear about what happened. Um, this this uh, uh, feeling of hurt needs to be addressed before we can actually learn as a person or as an organization and before we can reintegrate the um, professional. And in fact, the learning and the reintegration and even the relation with uh, the, the, the direct victims of the event is better if we approach it from the paradigm of trying to restore those relations than it is if we approach it from a uh, uh, paradigm of doing justice. Tom. Yeah, I, I'm quite interested in this concept because I've one of the things that I've noticed, and it might be UK specific, but I don't think it is, that if I look at the investigations and inquiries 
of 25, 30 years ago, Piper Alpha, they were quite quick and they were very good at delivering actionable improvements. And what I've noticed in more recent inquiries is they're very much focused about justice for the victims and they can become extremely emotional. And for instance, the Grenfell inquiry, which has really got some very simple, easy things to do across a very broad spectrum. But in the public eye, it's focused on some quite inappropriate selected technical solutions. And they've spent a lot of time in terms of years in giving the victims a voice. And I think that's, that's absolutely valid, but it's not necessarily a good way to improve safety. And it can lead to some very counterproductive behaviors from the people who want to take action, because by taking action, you become implicit in the guilt. So everyone's stepping back fast. So I just wonder whether this concept of restorative practice could manage this really wicked problem about how do you learn from accidents and improve the systems while also giving the victims due respect, rights, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Because sometimes Absol the victims, absolutely. yeah, yeah. Anyway. Yep, no, absolutely. Um, uh, the, the, there are, uh, the, the restorative practice is, is better all the way around and the restorative practice doesn't exclude in the end um, paying victims for um, damages which they have economically suffered and the restorative practice doesn't um, uh, even exclude totally punishment or uh, termination in the end. Uh, restorative uh, practice doesn't even exclude someone uh, I was gonna I'm trying to avoid the word blame because blame is something which you project on someone uh, but it, and that's not the intention but the sort of practice doesn't exclude someone feeling guilty or remor and certainly not remorseful about uh, doesn't exclude <clears throat> remorse for the things that happened and so it's it's a much um, so it's a, it's a, a way of uh, first at the emotional level and then at the rational level being able to address the aftermath of an incident. Um, and what we find is that, uh, that, that actually it, uh, it has economic, great economic advantages in terms of the, the type of liability payments that you need to do. Um, but there's a reason why restorative practice is not um, well established in the Western world. Uh, and that is to blame people is actually very aligned with Western culture, to be able to uh, ensure that causes of adverse events, events are projected upon someone um, uh, abolishes yourself from blame, from, from taking responsibility for that. It also fits very nicely in the paradigm of a controllable world. We wouldn't have had an accident if someone didn't mess up, better, better still, if someone uh, who is somehow a bad apple hadn't messed up. That really makes it very clear cut that, that we are just a victim of the event as, as the direct victims are. Um, we try to, I mean, there's a lot to be said for democracy and the trios politica and the way that the legal systems work in the Western world. And what we wrongly assume is that if we mimic some of the mechanisms of justice in society at large, that we then have a justice in organizations, but we don't. We don't have the independence of a judge in organizations. In fact, managers are always in the end, 
both responsible for the events that have um, uh, transpired, but also are sensitive to the, to the reputational damage that is being done by an incident. So there's no way that they're independent. There's hardly a way for appeal. Uh, and so the, the trying to mimic justice in society at large in an organization is, 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 is in vain. And if we then bring that down to a flow chart with green, orange, and red labels on it, then we're really making life very simplistic, assuming life is very simplistic. So the restorative paradigm uh, is, is there's a lot to be going for. It, it isn't very, very difficult to, to apply, but again, it needs uh, top level um, at least understanding and if possible uh, permission to, to uh, implement it. You cannot do that in an organization without having some backing because the, 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 the pressures to respond after an incident in a traditional way are just too large. Um, and in a knowledge sense, the paradigm, which I'm explaining in very brief terms here needs to be fully acknowledged. Um, but apart from that, it's doable. And we've developed a, a program uh, which runs with Northumbria University over Newcastle, together with NHS um, Foundation Trust Mercy Care, the one I mentioned before. And that's been hugely successful in rolling out a restorative practice in NHS in the UK over the last two or three years. And uh, a colleague and I are now uh, um, going to be implementing a Dutch language session over in the Netherlands. There's not many of you on the call today who speak Dutch, just one or two of them. Um, but uh, yeah, hi, Pedro. <laughs> but I'm sure that uh, that that uh, we we can work with uh, other regions as well if there's an interest. Just a simple question: Do you think restorative justice will help people better investigate? accidents and incidents and not become sort of fixated on the first cause. And I was prompted by this famous Dutch case where the paediatric nurse was blamed and I think actually imprisoned for being responsible for multiple murders, really, as a confluence of misinterpreting the statistics. But of course, the victims, the organisations, everyone was very happy to blame. And I, I, th I see that happening often. We, we fixate on the, a, a powerful technical cause, which might often be a technical and I wonder whether restorative uh, restorative practice would actually lead to better technical understanding of systems um, failures. Yeah I, I think in this uh, specific case restorative practice um, the, 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 this um, incorrect imprisonment could have been avoided in other ways as well than just restorative practice uh, but we have seen a recent case of uh, a nurse again uh, being struck from the register uh, because of um, errors um, and and um, that's a very much an end of pipe solution um, what we're, what restorative practice does is it does improve learning because once these emotional uh, this hurt has been um, not absolved but has been addressed um, it makes it easier for people to talk honestly and and in more detail about what happened and when they um, um, uh, what they went through than if we don't do that. I mean, even legally, it's much wiser to keep your mouth shut if you're involved in an investigation than if you are in a process of restoring relations. Now, having said that, I, have, I, I don't have um, the expectation that we'll be able to change the legal system anytime soon. Um, so 
my approach to restorative practices is, is, is quite practical and there's quite within organizations. And there's, a, I think, across the boundary of the organization towards the, the legal system, we, we might still need for the, for the, for the intermediate term, be very, uh, very hesitant in sharing information. So there, there is a consequence there. Um, the retributive system for society at large, just like the legal system itself, has a purpose. And, and it isn't, and there is, uh, the word says that there is a, the need is too large. There, there is an expectancy of retribution in society at large. And I would be much too ambitious if I, if, if, and all of us, I think, if we wanted to address that. But let's just t keep it small and, and talk about organizations. And particularly in my case, talk about um, adverse events that were a result not of um, purposeful actions. Now, I know there's a gray area there as well, but, but, but not in the sabotage. And uh, the Glenville Towers it was partially criminal in, in, in the actions that were done by organizations there. So, so for me, that's a borderline case. It's, I think there's enough to be done on the non-criminal side, um, also for safety, for us to be busy for quite a lifetime. Um, and then others can take it one step further. Now, on the other hand, I'm also involved on a sort of practice in campuses, university campuses, and those actions are on the borderline between mischief and criminal actions sometimes. Vandalism, when having drunk too much, particularly when someone is trying to impress someone else, um, borders on the line, and, and they might be very, uh, they, they have proven to be very um, suitable for a restorative approach as well. So that's a disclaimer of my own uh, talk just now. I've talked too much, sorry. It, it, it is the top of the hour. So I'd like to end, of course, asking um, Robert, what are your three takeaways you would like to leave the viewers with? Um, apart from buy the book, um, to um, uh, let me know how you fare and where you, where you run into problems. And I'd be, uh, and, and I'd see um, the most issues in getting support from top level management. We've, we've found that um, um, we, we've, we've been able to inspire uh, Sydney Modern Eye, a lot of people to think about uh, safety in a different uh, way than before. Um, but many have been frustrated by the uh, uh, freedom that they've got, gotten from their management to actually um, apply some of these things. So that, so together we need to work on that. I'm happy to help if needed. Right. Um, that, that's, uh, yeah. yeah. I, and that's why I think this, the size of your book is probably an advantage because it's easy to put that in front of management, easy to read. And I think what you want to do is raise your level of curiosity to carry on with the conversation, have discussion. And I think your book does a, a wonderful job in doing that. So Tamara, over to you to close her off. Absolutely. This has been an amazing conversation. Thank you very much, uh, Robert and Michael, for joining us today and sharing your ideas and your thoughts. I hope that people will go out and check out Robert's book. And just also to tie up, if you wanted to connect with Robert on LinkedIn, there's his LinkedIn profile yep. in the chat now. So just click on that and you can connect with him. So yep. thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much. Thanks, everyone. Have a great weekend, everybody, when it comes. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye. Bye.